So the, the conversation around the dinner table used to be like this. You need to eat your broccoli. Why? Because I said so. Yeah. And that conversation has shifted somewhat in that there are parents that want to cultivate you know, their, their children's curiosity and, and invite questions. And so, so that conversation has shifted to look more like you, you need to eat your broccoli. Why? Because it's good for you. Why? Because it's a good source of folic acid and, and potassium and, and fiber. And it has vitamins, like vitamins K and vitamin C that are good for your body. Why? Well, vitamin C builds collagen, which forms body tissue and bone and helps you, helps you heal when you get that boo-boo on your knee. And it also has a powerful antioxidant that protects your body from damaging free radicals. Why? Because free radicals are, are atoms with an odd number of electrons that can be formed when oxygen interacts with certain molecules and can cause a chain reaction like, like dominoes that make you sick. And so you need to eat your broccoli. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> so we get to the same conclusion. But um, we want things explained. We want to know the why. Here's a quote from Eugene Peterson. Explanation defines. It pins something down, but imagination cuts loose. Explanation reduces life to what can be used. Imagination enlarges life into what can be adored. We are in the book of Job, which is a story of this man that even though he was a, a, a man of character and, and a man of godliness, he was the epitome of a, a guy after God's heart. And yet, through a conversation with, with God and Satan, Job lost everything. He lost um, his uh, family and his fortune and his health. And the, the conversation between God and Satan was basically Satan tempting God. Don't you think that Job only loves and worships you and follows you because you have propped up his life with fortune and with family and with everything good. What if those props were taken away? Then, then would he be so quick to worship you? So everything was taken away. He loses everything. And then Job sits in this intense pain and this intense grief his friends come to visit, and though well-meaning, they give a view of God that has elements of truth but really misses the mark and definitely misses the compassion. And so over 35 chapters over the last few weeks, we've been seeing these friends that have been taking turns speaking truth to Job, and Job responding with a lot of questions. Why? Job desperately wants an explanation. So we come to the end of Job, this week and next. And instead of an explanation, God decides he wants to expand Job's imagination. 
So the conclusion of the book of Job is this dramatic appearance of God. And it seems like the perfect stage for God to give the backstory, you know, to pull back the curtain and says, Job, this is what was happening and this is, this is the big story. But instead, he avoids the question altogether. For most of the book, God has been the one on trial. He's been tempted by Satan. He's been questioned by Job. He's been misrepresented by Job's friends. And now God asks the questions. So we're going we're gonna to look at parts of three chapters today, not every verse, but definitely wanted to give you the scope of God's, God's question. Okay. If you want to grab a Bible at the end of your row, if you want to pass those down, uh, for you, or if you want to open up a Bible app on your phone and um, check your email while you're at it. Just kidding. Don't, please don't do that. I want to walk us through uh, God's case that he makes to Job. Job 38. If you're looking for Job, go to the middle of your Bible and turn left. It's right before Psalms. Job 38. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So the, the Lord answers Job, which is what Job's been wanting for a long, long time. God shows up, and, and God gives Job two challenges. He gives two speeches. We aren't going to read every verse, but this is the case. The first challenge is in chapter 38 uh, through 39. And it really involves the understanding of the universe. God asked Job if he knows how creation was designed and how it was established and governed. Okay. So he starts with celestial mechanics. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And then he moves into these mysteries of the earth and the sea. He's asking, who has the ability to govern creation? He says in verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed, Job, to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Then he moves to the mystery of light and physics. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Then he talks about the mystery of weather. Let's talk about weather, Joe. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? Verse 24, what is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Who cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Let's talk about, let's talk about stars, Joe. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? 
What about atmosphere, Job? The mystery of atmosphere. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you, do you send, verse 35, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report saying, here we are? And then he switches gears. Let's talk about the animal kingdom, Job. Verse 39, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Chapter 39, do you know when the mountain goats, goats give birth? Verse 5, who let the wild donkey go free, Job? Who untied its ropes? And then God highlights the stupidity and the speed of an ostrich. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. This is supposed to be kind of funny, you know. God's saying, look at the ostrich. She's stupid. <laughs> and you know what, Job? I created her to be stupid. Yet, verse 18, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. She's stupid, but she's fast. And speaking of horses, verse 19, do you give the horse its strength? Or clothe its neck with a flowing mane. It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength. It charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. Verse 25. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha. It catches the scent of battle from afar. The shout of commanders in the battle cry. How about birds, Joe? Does the hawk take flight? By your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? What about that, Joe? Chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. God, I am awestruck. I will shut up now. Throughout this first speech, throughout this first case, God is like a lawyer laying out his case to Job, not to explain Job's suffering, but to stretch his imagination to invite Job into God's majesty and into his power and creativity and into his loving care. The book of Romans, Paul writes to this church in Rome, and it's brilliant. It, it lays out this case for the gospel. And for 11 chapters, Paul brilliantly just puts layer upon layer of, 
a proof of God's plans, that God has always known what he's, what he's doing. And that his plans were made complete in, in Jesus. And he articulates it so well. And, and for you linear people, it's, it's brilliant, you know, because he just goes, makes his case. But then he gets to chapter 11. And he stops with the case. And he just worships. And there's actually a, a worship song embedded at the end of chapter 11. And there's this verse talking about Jesus. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God lays out his case to Job. And it is worship-inducing. And Job just sits in silence. So I want to invite us to do the same. Let's just reflect on God's words, and let's sit with Job in the silence of this awestruck majesty of God. I said, God, I do not understand this world. Everything is dying and broken. Why do I see nothing but suffering? God, I'm asking, could this be your plan? Sin has taken hold of this whole land. Will you not say anything else to me? He said, where were you the day that I measured? Sunk the base and stretched the line.
Things too wonderful for me Although I had no right to ask My God knelt and answered me Job is silenced, but he's not convinced. He is sobered, but he's not humbled. Job has not gone deep enough with God. Not yet. God's point is not to crush Job. It's It's not this majestic mic drop God saying, who are you to speak to me, boy? No, it's, a, it's an invitation into a deeper faith than Job has ever known. One writer said that Job has always been a true worshiper. That has never changed. He has never denied that, that if the Lord is God, really God, then he is completely in control, that he is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he is all-powerful. And yet, somehow, God's first speech forces him to look around and to admit that the Lord really is God, that who, who sustains everything that he created. And as the Lord is speaking to him, Job bows down further and further, and somehow his questions can be safely left at the feet of Almighty God. That's his reaction to the first speech. And yet there's still a problem. As there is with any of us, any believers who say, what a wonderful world. And yes, it is a wonderful world, and yet it is also a world that is plagued by evil and pain and suffering, which leads to the second speech. I've taught on this passage before. And I kind of get to this point and say, wow, God's majesty and God's power and his creativity are on display. But God doesn't stop with that. And his second challenge actually goes under the surface to where we are most raw He says, let's talk about justice and power. In the rebukes of of Job's three friends over the last couple of weeks, Job felt missed, you know? Job felt missed because he he knew that he had been a man after God's heart, that he had been a a man of character. In fact, in, in Job 29, this is what Job says about himself. He says, all who heard me praised me. All who saw me spoke well of me. He's not being arrogant. He's just saying that's kind of the way it was. For I assisted the poor in their need and the orphans who required help. I helped those without hope, and they blessed me. And I I caused the widow's hearts to sing for joy. Everything I did was honest. Righteousness covered me like a robe. I wore justice like a turban. 
I served as eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. I was a father to the poor and assisted strangers who needed help. I broke the jaws of godless oppressors and plucked their victims from their teeth. I was all about justice. So friends, your accusations miss the mark because that's not me. In his faithfulness, Job had embodied aspects of God's justice. But the Lord now questions Job for overextending his judgment of what his own suffering meant about God's justice and power. Verse 6, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? God's making this point that in speaking about justice on the earth, Job is referring to something much more extensive than he could ever imagine or comprehend. God says, adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself, God says, I will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. God says, Job, can, can you deal out justice and fairness? Can, do you have that authority? Job, can you run the world? And then he goes on. He uses these two creatures to... Talk about the fact that God controls the uncontrollable. The behemoth and the Leviathan. If Job or any, anybody is unable to subdue these powerful beasts who themselves are part of God's creation, then how would anyone presume to control or fully understand God in his mystery? And so... He says in verse 15, look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail always sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close knit. Its bones are like tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It, it ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it? And pierce its nose. In chapter 41, he says, let's talk about the Leviathan. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Verse 5, can you, can you make a pet of it like a bird, Joe? Or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Verse 7, can you, can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, yeah, I guarantee you, you will remember the struggle and you will never do that again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me, God says? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. The behemoth, the Leviathan, those are, those are two creatures that can't be conquered. Do you really think the one who created them could be conquered, could be figured out, could be explained. Yeah. 
those were creatures that God had created, but they also have this, this spiritual metaphorical role throughout Scripture. And he explains that. I mean, this is, he's talking about a dragon here. Listen, listen to this. Verse 12. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength, and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. People say, ah, I was like, a, he's talking about a crocodile. Oh, yeah? Okay. You ever seen a crocodile like this? Verse 18, it's snorting, snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. As one bad crocodile. Verse 26, the sword that reaches it has no effect nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Verse 33, nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Are you, Joe, are you, are you strong enough to face evil and win? In the book of Daniel, in Zechariah, in Revelation, in Isaiah 27, Leviathan shows up throughout Scripture. And it is always representative of, of evil, of Satan, of institutions and, and movements and supernatural powers that, that oppose the true God. So, Job, can you, can you face the dragon of evil? And when? Nothing, God says, can frustrate my purposes. God's works are consistent with his character and with his justice and with his love. God, Job sees God more clearly, and in so doing, he sees himself more clearly. Job, I'm, I'm not just putting all of, of my, you know, accomplishments on display here. I'm not, I'm not just showing you my resume of, of stars and universes and, and ostriches. I'm, I'm, I'm probing underneath the surface because your silence isn't what I'm after. I'm after your trust. And the obstacle to your trust is the fact that you have been sitting in pain and misery, that you've been on the receiving end of evil. That this big question, why do the righteous suffer? That's what I'm going after here, Job. And when it feels like Leviathan, when it feels like evil has won the day, I'm here to tell you that it hasn't. That I'm still in control, Job. So then, Job responds to that. 
chapter 42, I, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom and with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things too wonderful for me. You said, God, you said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now my eyes, now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I, I, I know now, God, that you work all things according to your purpose. Job, much like the farmer's insurance commercial, knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two, right? But he moves over the course of this incredible book. He he moves from this place of of pride and self-sufficiency to silence and awe. But God doesn't keep them there. He brings them into a place of comfort and repentance and restoration. Job quits defending himself, and that's when God starts healing. And the goal of this conversation is to bring Job to the end of himself in order to grab a hold of God. That as Job decreases, God increases. God says, I am bigger than you thought, and I love you more than you know. And that, friends, that bumps into our own presumptions. Because there is a a message out there that we can chart our own course and and that we are in control and that we really are our own gods. And so the world, according to Pinterest, is you exist on your own terms. Your only limit is you. And that's the sin of self-determination. You can be whatever you want to be. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's handiwork, created for good works in Christ. That God has, Psalm 139, God has shaped you. God has formed you. He knew you before you were even crying. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God that cannot be tamed. And that ultimately can't be explained. Only received. Let me do like a 30-second tangent here. This really speaks to the big why of your college career. Or if you're out of college, this speaks to the big why of your vocation and of your work. You, you, might, have, you might have thought, <clears throat> excuse me, that you were coming to Purdue to, because it's, you know, top five top five public institutions in all of the U.S. 
That's great. You are the top 1% or the 1%, man. Some of you had this, this vision. It's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that degree, and I'm, I'm going to go, you know, tour the world because that's what I do. And then I'm going to settle down, and I'm going to get that perfect job, and, and, and life is going to coast, and I'm going to live in this place that is just comfort, and, and uh, it's going to be good. And God says, oh, you're missing 98% of it. It's like everything that you're studying, God says, everything you're studying, it's about me. All those ologies, you know? They all point to God. What he does with Job is what he is doing in your class every single day. Job, have you considered? AJ, have you considered? The point is not to shame us. And the point is not to explain everything away. The point is to invite us to expand our imagination in mind-blowing, awestruck worship that the God who created and governs and controls everything loves you. And he proved that by defeating Leviathan, by defeating Satan, by defeating death, by defeating pain, by defeating destruction and disease and hopelessness once and for all on the cross. So God's invitation to you is to be awake, not just to his splendor and his intricacy in his majesty, in his creativity, but to be awake to his love and grace. Because that is even mind, more mind-blowing than ostriches and behemoths. We're going to take communion together this morning, and we invite you, if you are a Jesus follower, to take this communion, to take this bread, to take this cup. We're really celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is our life. And he knows our suffering and he knows our darkness and he knows our pain because he entered into the chaos. And he is okay with our why questions. He, he, he never, I, I never want you to get the idea that you can't ask those questions. And so why is this happening to me? Uh, when will this be over? What can I do to get through this? Where is God in the middle of this? A few weeks ago I talked about that, that over uh, a third of the lament, almost half of the Psalms are laments are, God, why? 
Why in the world would God put those in his scripture unless that was an invitation to ask those questions? God's okay with the why question. But here's what he wants to do. He, he wants to expand our imagination beyond the why to the who. Uh, I, I came across this verse this week that I, I think just leads us well into this communion. 1 John 5.20, we, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He, he's given us understanding, not so that we'll have that knowledge, not so that we can win the debate, not so that we can stomp our atheist friend in the ground, you know, with an argument. He's given us that understanding so that we may know him who is true. Truth is always relational for God. It's not a bunch of facts. And we, John says, we are in him who is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. He is eternal life. So the purpose of God's revelation in creation and in your ology class and in Hort Park and in the Rockies and in your skin diving off the coast of wherever, the, the point of that is not to offer explanations so that we can backward engineer God. But it is, it is meant to usher us into deeper trust. Mm-hmm.